Hey, uh, happy Easter. Good to see you guys. My name's Austin, one of the pastors here, and so incredibly grateful, honored, and excited to be talking about Jesus' death and resurrection this morning. So thank you guys for being here. Just to set the pace and the tone for this morning, this is not about Easter bunnies. This is not about fancy clothes. This is not about chocolate and candy. This is about the real King Jesus dying and triumphing over death, sin, and Satan. Uh, This day, 2,000 years ago, we are celebrating that Jesus is resurrected. Amen? So that's where we're going. I am excited to... um, to just talk about Jesus this morning and see the implications of the resurrection for us and to hopefully refresh this story. And so, hey, uh, you guys can open up to Luke 23, 24 if you got your Bibles. As you're getting there, though, um, question is, uh, can you think of a word, like a powerful word, an important word, that you might use a lot or someone you love uses a lot, and because it's been used a lot, it's kind of lost its value? Can you think of a word? Um, uh, if you know me, you're automatically probably thinking legend right now, right? Like legendary, right? Uh, and so uh, I love that word. My buddy and I in high school decided to use legendary as the primary adjective that we would use to describe everything we like, right? So everything was legendary and everyone was a legend. And uh, 10 years later, and I still use it a lot, I literally named my dog legend. I think he's the only mini golden doodle in Nebraska, maybe in the nation that's called legend. And so anyways, super fun. Um, but I also love uh, connecting people, and so sometimes on Sunday mornings, I'll be talking to one of you, and uh, I'm like, oh man, I'd love to introduce them to this other person, and so usually the intro is something like, hey, man, my friend James, dude, he is a legend. You're going to love him, right? And then James is like, oh my gosh, like, thanks, like, thanks for calling me a legend. I kind of am, you know, like, you kind of just, like, internalize this, and it's, like, super flattering and really encouraging, and then as you get to know me and you're friends with me for a little longer, you'll hear me introduce you to someone else, and say, man, this person is a legend. You're like, wait, wait, hold up. I thought I was a legend, you know, like, there's not two legends in this room. There's one, and it's me, and so what happens over time, by the way, side note, I mean it every time I say it, okay? (laughs) Another side note, if I ever call you a legend in a world of legend, that's like top tier, you know, like you're crazy. So anyways, um, uh, <laughs> but, um, but unfortunately what happens is over time as I've used the word, it's actually lost some of its value to people. If everyone's a legend, there's really no one's a legend, right? And we do this with a lot of words and a lot of things. Um, love, um, amazing, awesome, incredible, or hate miserable, horrible, you know, and they're important words and they're powerful words, but uh, over time they've started to lose some of their value to our hearts. Now, be clear, the value of the word, the truth of the word, the meaning of the word hasn't changed, but our response over time to that word can become dull, right? So friends, here's the word that I want to see how it hits your heart, how it affects your heart. You ready for it? You tell me if it's potent, amazing, awe-inspiring. Here it is, resurrection. Resurrection. Yeah, we can clap for that. We can clap for that. He's excited. His heart gets excited. Some of y'all are like, okay, you know, uh, well, I'm going to talk to you, okay? Uh, or, or just the phrase, Jesus died and rose again. Like, is that normal or is that powerful? Is that ordinary or is that legendary? Is that yawn worthy or spit your drink out of your mouth worthy. Now, however that word and that phrase, resurrection, Jesus died and rose again, however that word hits your heart, 
uh, my goal this morning is to, um, is to look deeper at the shock of Friday, the sadness of Saturday, and the surprise of Sunday in such a way that God's word and this story, this beautiful truth of resurrection would impact our, impact our hearts like never before right? And so maybe you've heard this message. Maybe you've heard about Easter 200 times. And my prayer is that God would do something special and refreshing on the 201st, okay? Maybe you've attended 50 Easter uh, church services or gatherings, right? My prayer is that God would do something unique on the 51st. And maybe some of you, I just talked to a young Chinese student that just gave his life to Jesus a couple years ago. This was his first Easter. Some of you in the room are, this is your first Easter to celebrate, praise God as a believer. Maybe you collected eggs as a kid, but this is the real, true Easter. And some of you in the room uh, know maybe bits and pieces of the story. Maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus. And my prayer for you is that this morning, God would open up your eyes and your heart and your ears to hear this true message and respond by believing that Jesus loves you so much that he died and rose again for you. Amen? So that's where we're going. I am crazy excited. And so in order for our hearts to be grasped by the, uh, by the magnitude of Jesus' resurrection, the first thing we need to do is subject our hearts to the shock of Friday. Okay, so look at Luke 23 with me. We're going to read a few verses there, 32 through 35. We'll look at just to get some. Luke 23. So two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Talking about Jesus. And when they came to the place that it's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. Okay, so if you're new to this story, there's this man named Jesus, and he's being crucified. Okay, crucifixion is a form of capital punishment that they would do in Jesus' time 2,000 years ago. It'd be similar, like they would look at the cross or crucifixion in a similar light that we would look at the electric chair, right? And so it's believed to be, through history, one of the most horrific and excruciating painful ways to die, right? They had mastered the art of, of pain and, and death. And so Jesus, this man, is being crucified. So here's what would happen. They would have a, a, a wooden cross, um, and they would lay you down on it, spread your arms out, drill a nail through your hands, each of your hands, uh, big nail, and then they put your feet one on top of one another, and then drill a nail straight through into the wooden cross, and then they would prop the cross up, so you, the only thing that would be holding you up is your nailed hands and feet, okay? And that's happening to Jesus. Now, can we just admit really quick that Jesus is very different than us? Right? Like Luke, uh, the, verse 34 says that Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, has anyone in the room ever been cut off in traffic and prayed, you know what, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? No, we're like, Father, flatten their tire. Or would their tread really wear down quick this year? You know, like something like that, right? Um, and Jesus says, no, forgive them. I mean, can you imagine praying for forgiveness for the people that are killing you? This Jesus is different. Right? This Jesus is completely different. But I want us to hone in on verse 35. This is a really, really important verse. So just again, we'll read it. And the, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, at Jesus, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. All right, so people are watching. A lot of people 
are looking and they're seeing what's going to happen. They're not here for the criminals. They're here for Jesus. And they've heard some things about him. And they're wondering what's going to happen when they try and pin him up to a cross, right? And in verse 27, just a little bit before, it says that a great multitude of people followed Jesus as he carried the cross. So we need to be clear. The picture that it's set of the cross is Jesus is there hanging. And there's a great multitude of people waiting to see what's going to happen watching to see what is this Jesus going to do. He's done all these amazing things. What's he going to do now? And then the ruler comes, and one of the rulers says, hey, he saved him up. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he really is God, if he really is Christ of God, then um, let him save himself. So the ruler objectively admits Jesus has saved others. And he twists the logic, and he jokingly says, hey, since you saved others, saving yourself must be easy, so go ahead and prove your God and pull yourself down off the cross. That's what he's asking him to do. Now, let's jump back for a second to see what the ruler's talking about. Did Jesus really save people? All right, so I just tracked through the book of Luke and looked at miracles and things Jesus did. And as you walk through just in the beginning chapters, he cast a demon out of a man. I don't know if anyone's ever done that here. Probably not, maybe not. Uh, uh, he cleansed an outcasted leper. He healed a withered hand. He uh, made a paralyzed man walk. And then if we just flip over to Luke 6, this is a crazy, beautiful story. Luke 6, 17 through 19. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. This is a lot of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him. And this is key. And he healed them all. Okay. So if you imagine like walking in Disneyland and like everyone gets healed in there. You're like, Grandma Peggy's like, man, my back's all right. You know, like, really, Grandma Peggy? You know, like, how? Like, actually, my knees feel good. You know, just this crazy, like, everyone that came to be healed from Jesus gets healed. And if that weren't enough, in Luke 7, uh, just after that, uh, Jesus, there's a widow uh, and her son dies. So her husband is dead. She's got her son, but then her son dies. And this isn't like he's laying in bed. They're wondering, man, is he dead or is he not? Well, let's check. The doctor's on his way. No, they're carrying him out. He's dead. They're carrying him out of the house. Jesus is walking by, sees his mom crying, and he looks at the man, dead, still, and he says, arise. And the man sits up and starts talking, okay? He literally raised him from the dead. And you may say, well, Austin, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I got some logic. I want to be smart and intelligent about this. And maybe, you know, doctors weren't great back then. Maybe he was just really sick or in a really deep sleep, and all Jesus really did was just wake him up, right? Okay, okay. Well, in John 11, there's a man named Lazarus that dies, okay? Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time Jesus comes to their town. Jesus is close with Lazarus, and he's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. So as Jesus comes into town, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, are bawling, weeping, crying, and they're like, man, Jesus, our brother died. Like, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days, and if you would have come sooner, we're sure that you could have healed him and prevented this death. Okay, And Jesus weeps with them in verse 35 of John 11, right? And he goes to the tomb where uh, Lazarus is, and he looks in, and the sisters are getting kind of weary because they're like, he's been dead for four days. Your, his body's going to stink, right? And Jesus walks up and says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. 
alive after four days of being dead. So no, he wasn't in a deep sleep. No, he wasn't feeling good. No, doctors were No, Jesus has power over death, right? So here's my point. Jesus has proved, indeed, multiple times, he has the power over death, right? He has the power to prevent death by healing people, and he has the power to reverse death by resurrecting people. And so when the ruler says he saved others, let him save himself, this is what he's referring to. Hey, you saved others, so saving, pe- saving yourself should be a piece of cake, right? And yet here is the shock of Friday. Are you ready for it? Jesus stayed on the cross. Jesus didn't save himself. But, and so here's my question. We've got to wrestle with this. Why not? Like, why didn't you save? You? You've got the power over death, Jesus. Why stop now, right? And I, I know that the, the ruler asked this sarcastically and as a joke and to scoff Jesus, but we, I have to assume that the disciples were asking the very same question. Think about it. Jesus has never shown any sign of weakness. He's never lost a battle. He's never come close to being subdued. They've never seen any point of failure in Jesus. We never find an account of Jesus' cap on a potential or power. He can do it all. Nothing is impossible for him. And so here, just track me for a second. Imagine for a moment you don't know today happened. Imagine if you were reading this story for the very first time and you have no idea that Sunday's coming. Imagine maybe even today, 2,000 years later, you're just reading through your Bible like a person in Cambodia or, 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 or Thailand, and they're in a remote village. They've never heard anything about this, and they're reading through this story, and they've seen all that Jesus has done, all that he's powerful, and they get to this point, and they see him on, a cra- on the cross, slowly weakening, slowly dying. What's going through their mind? Like, what's going through your heart if this was the very first time you've read this or heard this with no other knowledge of what is going to come? I mean, there's nothing Jesus can't handle. No battle he can't win, no contender that could overwhelm him, right? And if, and if I had no idea what was coming next, if it was my story, I'm thinking Jesus is going to take himself down from the cross, right? Like, they just said, hey, prove you that you're God by taking yourself down. And if I'm Jesus, I'm like, okay, here you go. I'm here. And imagine Jesus takes himself down from the cross. All the multitudes bow immediately. Oh, my gosh, you really are God. And all of them know. And all of them bow to him and realize, man, you are the powerful Christ of God. You are the Savior. And they bow to him, and yet he doesn't do that. But it's got to be so so odd, so weird, so shocking that he would, he would stay on the cross. The disciples are wondering, is this really what would finally defeat you? A cross and some nails? Like that's what would defeat you? Imagine every new verse is completely new to you. And look at Luke 23, verse 46. Verse 46. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Church, the God that breathed the universe into existence breathed his last breath. Let that sink in for a moment. Like, don't go anywhere else than that moment, right? Soak it in, the tragedy of what just happened. Listen, the raiser of the dead died. The healer of the multitudes is wounded terminally. Our unbreakable champion is broken. Jesus is dead. 
the tragedy of that, the shock of that. Now, growing up, I always thought my dad was Superman, and you may feel the same way about your dad, and he could do everything, right? I mean, he's, he's confident, and he, and he was active, and I just thought, man, my dad is impenetrable, right? He's invincible. And uh, until about four years ago, I got a call that my dad had been in a really horrible motorcycle accident, and I remember getting the call and just uh, bawling. Like, I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it, you know? I cried the entire way to the hospital, and I'll never forget walking into the hospital and seeing my dad for the first time. Superman didn't seem so super. Mr. Invincible was down. As I saw the IVs and the casts and the neck brace and the doctors and my dad, I just lost, I mean, it was so heartbreaking to see who I thought was Superman, was broken. And I have to believe this is the same way that the fall, Jesus' disciples felt as they saw him on the cross, right? Like, never a sign of weakness. And they see him die on the cross. Why now? What went wrong? I mean, he can never be taken down, and now he is. How did Jesus not pull this one off like he pulled all the others off? And verse 48 says, after Jesus died, the multitudes went home beating their breasts. This is a sign of extreme mourning and pain. Everyone's shocked about what just happened, that Jesus is actually dead. And so that night, as they toss and turn in bed, trying to fall asleep but replaying what happened, I'm willing to bet they're just begging that they wake up tomorrow morning and it was all a bad dream, which leads us to the sadness of Saturday. Look at verses 50 through 56. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. So he wasn't okay with them killing Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. That might describe some people in the room. You're maybe not affiliated with Jesus. You haven't trusted him yet, but you're looking for the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, you're looking in the right place if you're looking in the Bible. Um, Okay, 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Joseph says, hey man, can I, can I have him? And verse uh, 53 says, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid Jesus in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then these women, they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. All right, so there's a man named Joseph, and he says, hey, I'm looking for the kingdom of God. I want to do something good, and I uh, don't really know about Jesus, but I think he's an important man, and so he can use my tomb. I'll allow him to be buried in my tomb. And the women that were closely following Jesus watched in, these women that had followed him for years, uh, watch and see Jesus' dead body laid in the tomb, okay? Um, and then verse 56 is the only verse we get on Saturday, on what happened Saturday, okay? We know all about Friday. We know all about Sunday. Martin Luther said Saturday is one of the uh, most important and overlooked days of the Easter narrative. And so this is verse 56. This is all we get. And then these women, they returned, prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. All right, so like a modern-day mortician prepares the body for burial— the people in Jesus' time, the people closest to you would prepare your body for burial, right? So they'd use spices and ointments and wraps and linens and stuff like that to prepare your body for burial. And so the women want to start doing this, but the problem is 
Jesus died on Friday, and the Sabbath for the Jews started Friday night when the sun went down, okay? It would have been illegal for them to continue to prepare Jesus' body for burial once the, Sabbath went, or once the sun went down and the Sabbath started. Tracking with me? So they literally have to, I'm sure it was anxious, had to let Jesus not be prepared for burial and leave and observe the Sabbath. In verse 56, it says, they indeed did rest in the Sabbath and not, not finalize Jesus' preparation for burial. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if uh, I'm in an unhealthy place and something bad happens, my first knee-jerk reaction is to stay really busy and distracted, okay? So I don't have to think about it, right? And you're like, man, that sounds horrible, but we all do it. Something bad goes, and then we just fill our schedules, and we're super busy because we don't want to give ourselves any time to think about what's going wrong and what happened, right? Go, 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 so you never have to stop and think. Uh, we do this with funerals, right? Your loved one dies, and then you wrap yourself in all the finances, all the planning, all that stuff, and you never actually get to stop and mourn the loss of your loved one, at least for a while. It's kind of prolonged. And so this is the idea. Stay busy, and, uh, and you don't have to feel the weight of it. And this is what we do. I've seen it happen. I've seen it in my life. And yet here's the kicker of the story. The followers of Jesus couldn't do that. The Sabbath just started. So meaning the day after Jesus' death, they, the morning, that morning, they just sat and rested. Like there's no, to observe the Sabbath is to rest from any work. And so listen to this. As they woke up, there was no job to get to. There was no house project to work on. There was no Netflix and Hulu to binge, right? There, there, there was no football on the TV. They just, all they had was time to sit and replay and think about the tragedy that just happened last night, right? That's how they had to sit. And if I can just ask and press in, how would you feel if the most important person of your life was gone immediately. Whoever that is for you, imagine that right now, that whoever they are, guy or girl, was gone immediately. And so how would that next morning be? Waking up and, and you don't see them, rolling over and they're not there, walking in their room and they're gone, calling their phone and they don't answer because they're gone. This is what the disciples are feeling on Saturday. It's not a bad dream. It's real. Jesus is still dead, like he's still in the grave. And every day, Jesus' followers would just look to him and say, hey, where are we going to go? What, what are we going to do? I know it's exciting, but what are we going to do? And this morning was different. No direction from Jesus, no morning devotional, no time with him, no stories, no travel, no adventure, no miracles. What do we do now? Where are we supposed to go? People left everything to follow Jesus. Their houses uh, their families, their jobs, their hometowns to follow him. And now the man that they left everything for is dead and gone. What are we supposed to do? And verse 1 shows us that even his closest and most committed followers still believe Jesus was dead on Sunday. Okay? Verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now... Um, after the Sabbath ended, the women that were faithful to the Sabbath come back. They're like, we're ready. We're, it's early morning, and they're ready with the spices and the ointments to prepare Jesus to finish him for burial. Now, on one hand, we just have to really quick commend these women for the faith, right? Like, all, the, uh, all his other dudes are gone. Like, they've abandoned. They're hiding. They're afraid. These women love Jesus enough to say, no, 
we need to prepare his body for burial. We're going to go this morning, right? Amazing. On the other hand, them bringing spices indicates that they still thought he was dead, right? Like you don't bring spices and herbs uh, to a tomb that is empty, that you think is going to be empty. They thought Jesus was still in the tomb, still dead. In another account in the gospel, they're saying, who's going to move this stone away, right? They still think he's dead. They've accepted that he's gone. So with spices in their hands, tears in their eyes, they fully expect to see a tomb closed and Jesus' dead body laying in there. But, friend, but, praise God, they don't find what they expect. So the last point of our story is the surprise of Sunday. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. And they, these women, found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so these women come to the tomb, and there's this massive stone rolled away, and, and, and they don't even know what to think, and so they peek in, and Jesus' body isn't in there, and they're immediately confused, right? Now, I know we're 2,000 years removed from this, okay? I know that we know the end of the story. I know that we've already said it so far, but imagine for a second that you didn't know what's going to happen, that you have no idea. And so their first inclination in John 20 is that they think someone came and stole Jesus' body. They think someone came in. So just to be clear, the empty tomb, tomb by itself is not good news. The empty tomb by itself is not the surprise of Easter. It's not what our hope is in, right? And so as the women are confused, two men come up and they start to explain and teach the women. And I love the angel's question in verse 5. They say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? It's another way to ask, why are you bringing spices to prepare a dead body? There's only a living Savior now, you know? Like, what are you doing? And then they uh, continue to reveal what happens. You can look with me at verse 6 and 7 of Luke 24. They say, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Okay, so they're saying, hey, uh, uh, um, ladies, man, like, he he wasn't taken. Like, he's alive. He's risen just like he said. And I want us to imagine how it would feel to hear these words for the very first time. Listen, this truth, this death and resurrection, this Jesus has changed billions of lives lives over the last 2,000 years, okay? There are hundreds of people in the room today because this really happened and it's really true and Jesus is still changing lives and he's not done, right? So to think about this news that we come together, that billions of people have celebrated through the years, billions of people have been saved through, imagine hearing those words uttered for the very first time. This is what the women are experiencing. By the way, I love who God chooses to reveal his first truth to, right? It's amazing. And so these women are thinking, wait, wait, hold up. That sounds good, but we saw his body laid in the tomb. We saw him breathe his last breath on the cross. What do you mean? It would be like you and I this next week going to a funeral uh, home and, and, and seeing an open casket of a dead person, watching your friend still dead, uh, seeing them close it, take it out to the cemetery, they have their little funeral service, they lay the casket into the grave, and then you watch the people scoop dirt in to fill the hole, and they pack it clean. And then a couple days later, two men come to you and say, hey, actually, your friend isn't dead. What? I, no, I, trust me, he's as dead as it gets. You know, like he's down like six feet under. 
it's shocking. I mean, it's surprising. It's, it's mind-blowing, right? And so just to, I know that we know it's normal now. I know that we know it's going to happen. But just to think about the first time it hit. And the angels remind them, Jesus said this. He literally predicted it was going to happen. He said, listen, don't be afraid. I'm going to die. But don't doubt. Don't fret. Don't worry. I'm going to raise three days later, and I'm going to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And then verse 8 says they remembered his words. And throughout the Easter accounts, I flipped through every single one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I can't find any person that understood or remembered that Jesus was going to raise like, everyone forgot that he said that. Like, he told it to his people, and they forgot. And then these women remember. And so their response is to immediately run back to the disciples, the guys that are hiding. Hey, guys, they, they, Jesus is he's alive. Like, he's risen. The tomb is empty. And their immediate response is disbelief. They don't even believe him. Application, men, listen to the women in your life, okay? <laughs> just real simple. If they would have listened, the story would have been different, okay? Uh, and so just in the Bible, you know? Um, uh, and then, and then uh, there's, there's these two men, and Jesus appears to them as they're on the road to Emmaus, and he reveals himself to them, and it's amazing. Those two men run back to the disciples that are stubborn and not believing, and, they, and the two men come, hey, Jesus, he really is. The girls were right. We should have listened to him. You know, he, he, he's alive. And as they're talking about it, uh, Jesus enters in the room. So friends, here's the surprise of Sunday. Better than an empty tomb is a risen Savior. Amen. And so uh, let's look at verses 36 through 43 in uh, Luke 24. It says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is, I myself touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, this is too good to be true, and they marveled, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Talk about that. Uh, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them, right? And so Friday, they were shocked that Jesus died. Saturday, they were saddened that Jesus is really gone. But Sunday, they're now marveling that Jesus is eating at the table with them. And so he walks and says, "Why you don't have to be afraid. You don't need to worry. I, I did die, and I'm here. You can see my hands and where the nails went through. You can look at my feet and see where they drilled it in, and I'm alive. I won. It looked like I was defeated in the corner, but I won. I'm not a ghost or a hallucination or a spirit. You can really touch me and see. And by the way, you guys chuckled. One of my favorite things is that he's, Jesus is like in this climactic moment, like the best moment in the universe. Jesus is like, by the way, I'm, I'm hungry, you know? Like, hey, you know, hey, Andrew, you make a mean fish sandwich. Can you, you know, hook me up real quick? Oh, sure, you know, that's what you want. Okay, you know? And Jesus just sits and eats. And I mean, but just that, 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 that meal together. I mean, the friend that we thought was lost is here. The God that we thought was dead is alive. The hero that we thought was defeated is victorious. And I can just imagine the disciples around the table just fixated on Jesus. Like, I can't believe you're here. I thought you were dead. I thought you were gone. And you're really here. And I can touch you and see. And you're eating my fish sandwich, you know? Like, it's just so much joy, so much surprise, so much goodness, so much marveling, Right? And in light of this beautiful, incredible, life-changing story, I just want to end by giving you three encouragements, okay? Three things to take away from this story. Number one, 
God has a glorious plan even if we can't see it. Okay? God has a glorious plan even if we can't see it. Friends, don't be mistaken. In the midst of the shock of Friday, Jesus was never shocked. It's not like he's hanging from the cross wondering, man, am I really going to die? Like, can I, can I even? No, this is why he came. Jesus left heaven to come for you for the sole purpose of dying for your sins, right? This is why he came. And the rulers and the people shout, hey, hey, save yourself and save us. Listen, that's what he's doing, saving you by not saving himself. Listen, if Jesus would have taken himself down from the cross, there would be no forgiveness of sins. We would spend eternity in hell if Jesus took himself down from the cross, We needed him to stay, and he did. You and I have an unpayable debt before God because of all the sin in our life, right? Everything we've done wrong and all the things we've neglected to do right, an unpayable debt, and our good works, our inspired efforts, and our religious activities could never close the gap. We did not need to get better. We needed someone to be perfect in our place, and it's exactly what Jesus did. In our place, he came as our perfect substitute to do what we could never do and die the death we should have died. The people beg him, hey, prove your God. You really want to prove it? Take yourself down from the cross. And him staying on the cross was the ultimate display that he is indeed God. And so church, Easter proves that we can trust him. Easter proves that God knows better than us. Easter proves that God has a better plan than us. And so we can trust him in light of that to do what he wants to do even when we can't see it, right? Number two, second application, learn to rest in Jesus' finished works. Learn to rest in Jesus' finished work. And so uh, this is beautiful, and I had never seen it before this last week as I was studying, but it's no mistake that right after the cross was the Sabbath. In other words, the only appropriate response to Jesus dying on the cross is us resting from our works and resting in what he did. Make sense? Like, the only appropriate response is to say, I believe that your work on the cross was enough, and so there's no more work for me to do. As far as eternal salvation, securing us and God, there's no more work to be done. I believe from the cross that it was all done. God didn't do that on accident. He planned it out to have the Sabbath right after so that people knew I rest in response to the cross. And we're busy people, aren't we? Like we get swept up in earning and and, and merit and who deserves what, but the cross and resurrection proclaim that we can finally rest. We can put an end to all merit and all deserving because we believe that Jesus won it for us, did what we never could, right? Our works get us to hell, but Jesus' works bring us to heaven with God forever. And so this Easter, friends, as you feel your heart start to creep into proving yourself to God, wearing your best outfit, cleaning up the outside, my call to you is to learn how to rest in his finished works, right? And the third and last encouragement is that we take the surprise of Sunday to weary souls around the world. 
we take the surprise of Sunday to weary souls around the world. And so in Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus says that we should proclaim his name. We should take this message to all nations, right? And so listen, there are broken people in your neighborhood. There are lost, hopeless people scattered around the world in places that have never heard Jesus. There are people in this room that are hurting. You walk by by people every single day that do not know Jesus, and we have the message of hope. We have this message of truth and love and eternal life. And so would we be the women, like the women, that run and immediately tell people and say, no, I I can't keep this in. Even if you don't believe it, I'm going to tell you it because it's true and it's beautiful and it's real. And so you can decide how you want to respond to it. But I'm going to decide to tell you to give you the opportunity to respond. If this message is true, if it's gripped you, if it's changed your life, then it's worthy of you taking it. It's worthy of you proclaiming it. And, and so um, if you feel this Easter quiet about the story of Jesus, remind yourself of when the story first surprised you and tell someone about it. Start in your neighborhood, but don't stop there. Take it to the nations. There are people all over the world right now who have zero access to this book, to this story, to this truth, and they're going to die hopeless and afraid because they've never had anyone tell them about Jesus. And so if this message is true, If you're saying, I'm a believer, I trust in Jesus, I'm all about Easter, I'm all about the story, then we can't leave it with just impacting and surprising us. We need to take it to the nations across the world to tell people that Jesus really did die and raise for them. Now, if you're in the room and you haven't trusted in Jesus, uh, maybe you're like uh, Joseph that's just kind of searching and kind of looking for the kingdom, interested in God, but maybe not sure my call this morning is to trust in Jesus. Like, just give your life over to him. Every other thing you follow, every other thing you buy, every other thing you give your life to will die, and it'll never come back. But Jesus died, and he came back. And he not only died just because he died because he loves you, he died voluntarily for you. And so my call this morning, I'm pleading with you, give your life over to him. Turn from your sin Turn to Jesus and trust him. If you don't know how to do that, let's talk after the gathering. Come up to me. I'll be up front, and I'd love to pray with you and sit with you. If you like, I need to have more questions, I'll take you out to coffee or lunch this week. I love Chipotle. We'll go there, okay? So it's going to be awesome, but um, this is a real plea. Like, if, if this story is true, then, then the call is to respond to it. You either believe it's true, give your life over to him, or you believe it's fake, and you walk away right? Um, there's no middle ground. You can't end your life. One, I don't really know. I knew this story. I didn't really believe in it. So my call was to believe. Friends, this is the shock of Friday, the sadness of Saturday, and the surprise of Sunday that Jesus really did die, and he really did resurrect because he loves you, and, uh, and, he, and he, he's bought you back into uh, eternal relationship with God. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue to sing and celebrate this truth.